take your Bibles this morning and open up to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And uh, we're not going to stay here, um, but this is kind of where we're going to begin, where we open up God's Word together. And uh, we're going to look at uh, some various scripture passages. I'll have some of them up here. Some of them will just be the references. And so I encourage you, if you have a pen, take some notes and uh, utilize this as an opportunity to do some more study on your own, even outside of Sunday. And that's something I just encourage you to do. Uh, never just take what is given to you here and say that's enough for your week. Always, always, always uh, supplement that and continue to open up God's Word and study that throughout the week. That's what's going to nourish you and feed you in the same way that you're not just going to eat a meal today. At least I hope not. And then uh, go the rest of the week without eating. Uh, that's how I desire you would treat the Word of God as well. That's uh, what's most important uh, in, this, in this case. And we've been uh, going through this series of talks entitled God Is. And looking specifically at who does the Bible reveal God to be. And one of the greatest challenges as we encounter a series of talks like this is that oftentimes we realize or recognize that maybe who I have created God to be in my own mind is not actually the God of the Bible. And so my desire as we walk through this is that you would understand and recognize to a new degree who God says He is. Not who the church has said He is, okay? Or even who we have said He is, but who does God say that He is? Who does He reveal Himself to be? That's what my, my desire is in the midst of this. As I was preparing this week, uh, I came across an article written uh, uh, specifically about what took place on September 11th. And many of you... When you hear that date, you immediately tie it to the historical uh, events of that day. And it often doesn't seem like it was as long ago as it was, because many of you can place yourself uh, when that happened. I certainly can, as we were at home doing school and everything stopped as we watched what unfolded uh, some thousands of miles away, yet still in our own country. And this article specifically written was about two individuals that had met and in very different circumstances, both impacted by this event, but in different ways. Uh, The lady in the article had two close relatives that were supposed to be present in the Twin Towers that day and for one reason or another were not. And her response was, praise the Lord, he protected them that day. And for the man in this article, his nephew was on one of the flights that was hijacked and subsequently destroyed. And his response clearly would have been, why didn't God protect him? Now, that response and those mixed emotions on both sides 
Surely were the responses of many as close to 3,000 people lost their lives that day. And many others who could have been in that situation, whether it be because they didn't make their flight or got sick the day before and didn't come into work, whatever the situation, we're left with a difficult challenge. And we could all sit here outside of this one circumstance and identify instances where it seemed as though God was protecting a certain group, but not protecting another. These circumstances often cause people to respond in different ways, and it should rightly challenge our idea of who God has revealed himself to be. Why does God protect some and not others? What does God protect us from? Even further, what doesn't He promise to protect us from? And how can I know whether or not I am secure under God's protection? If you haven't figured it out already, our focus today is God is protector or defender. And the main idea that I want to communicate with you this morning, that is, if you get nothing else out of today, I want you to wrestle with this statement, and we're going to unpack that throughout this morning. It's that in Christ, God promises eternal security, not earthly satisfaction. In Christ, God promises eternal security, not earthly satisfaction, and As I said, we're going to unpack this a lot, but I want to pause and I want to pray because I'm convinced and I've been burdened by this all week that this has the potential to radically shift our view of who God is. And the reason that is is because so often we come to this discussion already having made up our mind as to who we believe God is or more likely who we believe he should be rather than who has the Bible revealed God to be. How has God revealed himself in his own word? So let's pause, let's pray, and I want to challenge you to wrestle with this, to set aside maybe your own presuppositions about who God is, and allow scripture to unpack that for you today. Father, we come to you in humility, recognizing that it is in our own humanity that we seek to understand your sovereignty, Lord, we recognize that as hard as we try, we will never fully comprehend all that you are because we are created beings, because we uh, do not have understanding that even comes close to yours. And yet, Lord, we desire and long that we would represent you well, that we would be a church that is rooted into truth, not our own ideas or concepts. And so, Challenge our thinking, reveal to us this morning, Lord, areas where we have misconstrued your name, areas where we have interpreted you as someone you are not, and help us to see clearly through your word exactly who you are and who you've called us to be as a result of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in the midst of this, the logical first question that I posed was, why is it that God protects some and not others? 
And this morning, what I want to do is I want to walk backwards from this question to an understanding, first of all, of sin, and ultimately a clearer understanding of what God does promise to protect us from and what He doesn't. At its core, this is ultimately the problem of evil and has been debated for centuries. And a, a theological term to describe this debate is a theodicy, okay, theodicy. And it is simply the challenge or the struggle with how you reconcile a good God with evil in the world. How many of you at some time or another, or maybe currently, have struggled with that? Don't be shy. I think many of us have, and if not, it's something we should wrestle with in order to better understand what role does God play in the midst of all of this. How can a good God allow evil in the world? And this is where I want to start in Genesis chapter 3. Now, when we talked about God as creator, we highlighted His uh, organized, His uh, process in creating, and that when He created, He said, this is good. Everyone say good. And yet, in the midst of all of this, Genesis chapter 3 begins to reveal some other realities that take place. And I don't want to assume anyone knows the whole of this story, and so we're going to review it. And I'm actually going to start in Genesis 2, verse 15, if you look there. Genesis 2, verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam and Eve are placed in the garden And in the middle of the garden is a tree. God warns man that if he eats of this tree, it will cause ultimately a division in their relationship. Death. And so up to this point, death has not been a part of creation. It has not happened. And God warns mankind that he has created, hey, you have freedom here in this garden, in this place I've created for you. But there's one thing. Don't eat of this tree. Now, jump over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now pause, I want everyone to recognize here a full comprehension and understanding by humankind as to what God said. There was not a misunderstanding here about what God communicated, alright? They got it. Everyone say they got it. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, all of a sudden, exactly what God said shouldn't happen, does happen. They eat of the tree, and separation happens. Man sins against God. The first evil is committed as man strays away from the commands of the Lord and eats of the fruit. Now, what's really interesting is if you jump with me to verse 22 of chapter 3. And this, what ensues between what we just read through verse 7 and verse 22 is God comes before them. He asks them, where, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? And then when, when they explain everything that's happened, he reveals everything subsequently that happens, not just to them, but to all creation as a result of their sin. And then in verse 22, we often skip over this portion. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, this separation is seen visually as mankind is forced out of the garden But understand why God forced them out of the garden. God recognized now the sinful state of mankind. And he also recognized that in this sinful state, if mankind took of the tree of life and ate, he would live forever in this state of separation apart from God. And what I want you to identify in the midst of this is that from the very beginning, the very first sin, God had the gospel in mind. God functions in a protective way to say, you need to get out of the garden and I'm going to guard the entrance of the garden so that no man now can enter and eat of the tree of life because you'll be doomed to be in this state for eternity. Now, some people, and I've had people ask this question, when we think about who God is, And we'll talk about the significance of this passage in Genesis 3 a little later on. But some people ask, why did God put the tree in the garden in the first place? If this is what happens, why is there a tree in the middle of the garden that can cause this separation to take place? Here's what I want you to think about. In a creation where there is no choice... To go against who God is. What else do you eliminate with it? When we eliminate. The opportunity. For people to choose. To commit a heinous act. To go against the grain of God. At the same time. We eliminate the opportunity. To choose to serve God. We eliminate. The opportunity to love. If there's no such thing as. Something being unloving. We eliminate the opportunity to choose to be in relationship. We eliminate all choice 
in the midst of this. And what it reveals about who God is is that he longs for, he desires not just a bunch of robots to do his will. He longs to be in relationship with his creation. He longs for that which he created in his image, humanity, to choose to walk in obedience to him, knowing that ultimately what he does is for their good. And yet, if you take away even the chance for them to choose to go against that, at the same time you take away the chance for them to choose to be in relationship with him. If that's the only possibility then it removes an aspect of even being able to have a relationship. Now, we can understand, based on this, how evil came to be. And we can even maybe wrestle with, even if it's not solidified in our mind. And I would encourage you, don't just take these things and say, oh, that's the answer. Wrestle with this challenge yourself with this develop this because i want i I long for your faith to be your own your faith should not be mine it cannot be based on answers that i give you it needs to be your own understanding of what god's word has said and who he's revealed himself to be but even if we understand how evil came to be and we understand what has brought us to this point There's still further questions. The next question that comes up is, okay, well, if God protected humanity by pushing them out of the garden, and He's our protector, if I, if I see Him in that light, if I understand that, then what, what does He protect us from? And when asking this question, and oftentimes what I'll challenge people to do is, you can determine what you believe God will protect you from, based on how we pray or based on our own assumption of how God will act in our own minds. And so if you want to answer that question in your own life, in your own spiritual walk, do some internal dialogue. Okay, what am I convinced God will protect me from? What am I convinced God will protect those I love from? What am I convinced God will protect our community from or our country from or the world from? And as you wrestle with that, some of you already have things coming to mind. But then I want to challenge you with this. Where does Scripture promise these things? And this is the part that we often miss, that we often stop. We stop in the dialogue of, yeah, God's a good God, and so surely He's going to protect me from X, Y, and Z. God's a good God, and so surely He's not going to let this happen, and this is how it's going to... And all we're doing in that sense is we are putting God in our own box, because I guarantee you, just across the aisle, someone else has a different concept of what that looks like. Or on the other side of that coin, someone else sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you has gone through an intense period of loss or grief or trial or challenge and they're sitting there wondering, I don't even know that God protects at all anymore. And so we have to wrestle with this. What, all right, what biblically then does God protect us from? How do I deconstruct this and build it back up based in truth? 
And as I studied this this past week, I was challenged by this. I realized in my own life that I have put God in a box in this case. And I found two things specifically that we see time and again in Scripture that God has absolutely promised to protect us from. The first one of those is He's promised to protect us from Satan and the evil forces in the spiritual realm. He's promised to protect us from Satan and evil forces in the spiritual realm. Now, a couple passages, because I don't want to just say this and say, well, I studied it, so trust me, we need to see it in Scripture. Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to put these references up here, jot them down, and I'm going to read these to you. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. The Apostle Paul speaking here to the church. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, in a similar way, Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, say, And you who were dead, everyone say dead, In your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, everyone say alive, together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, listen. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, these rulers and authorities triumphing over them, we can quickly deduce that he's not talking about earthly rulers because we can look around and say, there's earthly rulers who have not been disarmed, who still have power and influence and wreak havoc upon their nations and societies. But it's very understandable, especially when you read the larger context with which Paul is speaking about to the church in Colossae, he's talking about... A spiritual darkness, a spiritual battle that's ensuing, and in Christ, that is defeated. It's gone. Now, what we often don't admit in the midst of that is we still see that spiritual battle taking place. But if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, those things cannot defeat you. Romans 8 reminds us that neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything in all the world can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's no power within the spiritual realm that can separate. God has promised that in Christ you will be protected from these things. Now, for those who are not in Christ, that protection is not promised. And we see that throughout Scripture as people encounter demon possession. That's a real thing. That darkness, that spiritual force is a real thing. And it does not say you will not be impacted by that, but what it does say is it will not defeat you if you are in Christ. It cannot. God's promised protection 
over Satan and the, the darkness, the evil forces. The second thing that the Bible clearly articulates that God protects us from, and my prayer is that if you're a regular attender here, you grasp this already. And that's that God promises to protect us from eternal death in Christ. He promises to protect us from eternal death in Christ. Now, to emphasize this, in Scripture, Genesis 3.22, which we went over, is the first instance that we see this. God was so concerned that humanity would enter back into the garden, would stay there, would eat of the tree of life, and forever be condemned to live in that separated state. That he pushed them out of the garden. That's protection. And then, to emphasize that further, if we go to John chapter 3, specifically verses 16 through 21, and many of you could quote 16, and I would encourage you, if you've memorized John 3.16, work to memorize the rest that follows because it's so powerful when you see that all in scope. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's protection. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you see the distinction there? Protected versus unprotected in this way. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, if those two things are evident in Scripture that God protects us from, some of you are already asking this and wondering, what does God not promise to protect us from. And I hate to tell you, but this list is a lot bigger. So I'm going to mention just a few. The first thing that the Bible does not promise to protect us from is suffering. In 1 Peter 4, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Think about that. When was the last time you equated your suffering with that of Jesus and rejoiced as a result? That's challenging to me. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Suffering is not something God promises to protect us from. In fact, there's numerous places in Scripture where God says, anticipate suffering. 
don't be surprised when suffering happens. And all the more when we understand evil back in Genesis and what has taken place. When suffering happens, we should go, man, it's exactly as God said. Now, similar to that, the second thing, God does not promise to protect us from trial. And one of the most prominent passages about that is in James 1, where he says, count it all joy. Everyone say joy. When you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. That's mature, lacking in nothing. So God does not promise to protect us from trial, from suffering, from trial. In fact, what the Bible reveals is God uses these things as an opportunity to grow and mature His people to a place where they're mature. Unfortunately, we don't often see it that way. We often see that God's the one who needs to grow up and figure things out. Don't we? God, what are you doing? Why? How could you let this happen? Imagine how you would respond if your uh, toddler approached you and said those words to you. Mom and Dad, how could you let this happen? He doesn't promise to protect us from those things. Thirdly, He does not promise to protect us from worldly wickedness, the choices of other people. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, He says these things, and this should be something we reference as a church when we see wickedness happening around us, and we should go, oh, I knew this was going to happen. The Bible said this is what was going to take place. This doesn't surprise me. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Everyone say difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now, catch that? That, that is a big list and every one of you has seen this in some way or another. You read this list, you go, yep. And yet, notice that it does not say, don't worry, God's going to protect you from these people. What does it say? You actively avoid these individuals. Actively avoid these people. Now, there's always that one person who goes, but what about sharing the gospel? This does not diminish our calling as a church to share the good news. Everyone say good news. Rather, it begs the question, who do you choose to spend the growing time of your life with? And what I mean by growing time, who has the most input and investment in you? Is it people who are described by this? Or is it those who are devotely seeking to follow Jesus and saying, man, I just want to be more like him. God does not promise to protect us from these individuals and many of you have faced circumstances where you are on the receiving side of someone else's bad decisions that does not mean that God is not still faithful in the middle of that 
Rather, we should anticipate this. And then look back at what God has promised to protect us from and go, praise the Lord that these things and these people have no bearing upon my eternal security. That's secure. Fourthly, God does not promise to protect us from temptation. Now, 1 Corinthians 10 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, if you're tempted by something, you're not the only one. Someone else is tempted by the same thing. God is faithful. Everyone's, let's, we're going to say that together, okay? One, two, three. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, beyond your ability. But when you are tempted, He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it or stand up under it. That's not a promise that God is going to keep you from temptation. Rather, that when you are tempted, God is faithful. He's protective in that He always gives you an out. He always gives you an escape. And the last one I'll mention for you, what does God not promise to protect us from, is earthly death. That's physical, our body here on this earth. He does not promise to protect us from earthly death. Hebrews 9 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That is, each one of us is not promised to continue living. Our promise is eternal security. Not here on this earth. And this is the part we miss. God promises eternal security, not earthly satisfaction. That is, unless Jesus returns in our lifetime. And we don't know when he's going to return. That could happen, but we're not promised that it will. There's a difference. We believe that he's going to return, amen? But that doesn't mean that it's going to be in my lifetime. And so every moment I should be recognizing, I am not promised to avoid earthly death. As much as I long for that, as much as I would be completely okay with not experiencing that, we're not promised that. And we state this very evidently when we say truths such as, we're not promised tomorrow, but we don't often live in light of what we say. Because then we get upset with God when He doesn't protect someone I love or me in a certain circumstance. We go, how could you do this, God? And in the next breath, if I'm doing well, I say, well, I'm not promised tomorrow. Do you see the dichotomy here? What happens Another question that's asked in the midst of this is how, how does God protect us? We understand He protects us from these things biblically. We understand He does not promise to protect us from others. But how does He protect us? And I want to give you three specific ways that He protects us. The first one, by giving His Word to us. He protects us by giving His Word to us. And Ephesians 6 highlights this when it talks about the armor of God. Take up the sword of the Spirit. 
which is the Word of God. God has equipped you with the most powerful weapon against the schemes of the enemy and the schemes of individuals who you are going to encounter because God has not promised to protect us from that. He's given us the greatest tool in His Word to know who He is, to know how we're to live, to process those things and challenge each other in that. Secondly, by giving His Spirit to us. In John 14, Jesus identified and said, it's better that I go away because the Spirit, the Helper will come to you. And we see that take place in Acts. As the Spirit comes upon the disciples and the power of the Spirit equips them to do the ministry that's before them. He protects us by giving us His Spirit. When you have a sense in your gut that something is not right, when there's conviction, when you're stepping into a situation or you're tempted and there's a tug and pull, that is a good thing. Because it means God's Spirit is working. And if you, if you have a tension in your life where, man, where I am just doesn't seem like where I should be, that's a good thing. That's God's way of protecting and growing and maturing us to be more like His Son. Thirdly, how does God protect us? By giving His Son for us. We talk about that promise of eternal security. It is only found in the person of Jesus. It is only found in Him. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-7, through 7, I'm going to read this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And what you will read throughout Scripture is that God is most concerned that you understand everything here is temporary. Everything here is fragile, but in Christ, your eternity is not. It's secure. It's protected. It's safe. In closing today, the last question that we should ask in the midst of this is how... Do I live under His protection? How do I live under His protection? And for that, I want, to, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 46. Because this is where I want to leave us today. And this is one of my favorite psalms. And it's one of the psalms that I probably come back to the most when I'm sitting with people in the hospital or their homes. Because Psalm 46 is the reminder we need as to where we are going to plant our feet. When I face suffering, when I face trial, when I face people that are acting in wicked, evil ways, when I face death, not if, when, listen to the words of this psalm. 
says God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How He's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, I don't know about you, but the only time that we need to run for a fortress is when we're anticipating trouble. When I need to remain secure, when I need to know that I am safe, the thing I run to in those times is where I find my refuge. For some of you, you run to work. For some of you, you run to money. For some of you, you run to relationships with other people. For some of you, you may run to a certain substance. For some of you, you resort to yourself. You clam up inside yourself. You may have a completely different way of dealing with the trial, the suffering, the struggles you face. But what I want to encourage you is if you're asking the question, how do I remain under the protection of the Lord? Take refuge in Him. Find your security, your fortress, the place where you plant your feet in the God of the universe who through His Son has made a way for us to be certain of our eternity because we recognize that what is here is not eternal. It's not promised. And so I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and as they do, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And as we wrestle with these, as we consider this reality of God as protector, defender, maybe you're facing a situation right now where you're wrestling with that and you're saying, I have got to take refuge in the Lord. And so as we sing this last song, I just want to encourage you to take whatever posture you need to take. If you need to stay seated and you need to pray over this in your own life, if you need to kneel, whether it's turning around and kneeling in your pew or coming up here, do that. If you feel prompted to pray with someone specifically during this last song, do that. And take this time to reflect. And to leave here knowing that you are seeking in everything you can, everything you do, to take refuge in the Lord. Father, may 
this. Challenge us and may we see you for who you are. We praise you that you have protected us. You've given us eternity in Christ. But Lord, we also recognize that if we are not in Christ, we are not promised protection at all. And the challenge of that so often for us, Lord, is to live for eternity rather than the transient, the temporary. So Lord, as we process this now, may we do so according to your will and in tune with and listening to the prompting of your spirit, the areas where we need most to take refuge in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.